Take your Bibles tonight and turn to the Gospel of John, if you would. John chapter 21, verses 15 through 19. John 21, 15 through 19. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. The question, the question, what do you want? That is the fundamental question of discipleship because you are what you love. You probably have never heard of this movie and in some ways you haven't missed anything. It's a 1979 movie. It's called Stalker. Stalker because the guide through this dystopian land that had been apocalyptically wiped out, Stalker was the guide. And since there was nothing much to have in this world and enjoy anymore, there was still this place called the zone. And if you could get a stalker or a guide to take you to the zone, in this place called the zone was a room. And so stalker and two other guys, one's called professor and the other guy's called writer, uh, they go to the room and the, the zone and they're looking for the room. And they want to get there because here's what the guide says, the room tells them uh, that they will achieve everything their hearts desire. Dreams will come true when you enter the room. The room will get you exactly what you want. And so they finally make this long journey. The movie's about the journey getting there, and they get to the room. And they're on the verge of going in, but right before they go in, Professor and Ryder kind of get cold feet. And the reason is, is they came to this conclusion um, This is the most important moment of your life, the guide says. Your innermost wish will be made true. So he says to both of them, here we are. This is the place where you can have what you want. Who wants to go first? And so they hesitate, and they're not sure they, after all of the journey that they even want to go in. Here's why. Because they say, what if I don't know what I want? then it's the, the guide says to him, well, the room will decide that because the room will reveal what you really want. 
And they came to this disturbing thought, what if what I think I want is not what I most deeply wish for? A disturbing thought came across, what if they don't want what they think they want? What if, in effect, they're not even really who they think they are? The guide ends up at the end saying this, not many people can confront the truth about themselves. If they did, they would take on an immediate and profound dislike to the person in whose skin they learned to sit quite tolerably all these years. In other words, they didn't want to go in the room after all. You know why? Because the more they thought about it, the more it frightened them, the more they were afraid that the room would reveal and everyone would know what they really wanted, not what they say they wanted, but what the truth of it was. So I thought, wow, what if, what if I asked you tonight as a Christian, could you tell me what you deeply long for, what you really love the most? I believe everyone, if you're a Christian tonight, knows exactly what you ought to say. <laughs> but it could be that you are right, that what you really say is what is really true in your heart. But let me ask you tonight, if we had that room, would you like to step into it? Would you like to have revealed to everyone what your deepest longings are? what you really want and love the most in this life? Are you confident that what you think you love the most aligns with your deepest and innermost longings, what you really love the most? Stalker ends it when the conversation says, this is one of the lessons of the zone. Sometimes a man doesn't want to do what a man thinks he wants to do. Peter was confident. Peter was very confident. If there was, a, and there was the upper room, <laughs> that's where the discourse about Peter pledging to Jesus that he would do anything. Jesus basically was telling him, hey, before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. And G Peter's astounded. You know why? Peter thinks he has a well-ordered love. I mean, he's confident of it. If you read Matthew's version of this discussion between Jesus and Peter in Matthew 26, 31 through 35, in the original language, Peter says two sentences. Both of them include a double negative. In other words, it is the very strongest way that you can negate anything. In other words, Peter is saying, and I'll read it to you, I will never, he says, everybody else may stumble. He says, I will never be made to stumble. And never means never, never, it's impossible I mean, he's confident. Peter would have said, if you had a room, I'll walk into the room because I can tell you my greatest desire and passion is Jesus. Following him, being his disciple. He said it. And then in the very next statement, he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never, ever, impossible, deny you. I mean, that's about as confident as you can get. Peter is virtually saying, I love you more than life, Jesus. Jesus, don't even hesitate. You don't have to think another second about it. Listen, you are my deepest longing. You're my innermost passion. You are it. And I think if there was a room to go into, Peter would have said, I'll go first, no problem. But here's the disturbing reality. He was dead wrong. Dead wrong. There was this huge, not small, huge gap between what he thought he loved most 
and what he really loved most. In light of that, I wrote down this truth, two of them actually. We don't always love what we say we do. We don't. We do not always love what we say we do. Secondly, and it builds on it, we don't always love as much as we say we do. We don't. Case in point, we can get so easily bent out of shape at our wife or our husband or our children over the smallest, insignificant, trivial things. We blow out of proportion things that really don't matter, and the things that do, we let go by the wayside weeks and months on end, and we really doesn't even bother us. So we don't always love what we say we love. And we don't love it as much as we say that we love it. And the room reveals it. And so does the Bible. A disordered love, as we've said over the weeks, will always produce a disordered life. Peter had a disordered love. And the scariest part is he didn't know it. I mean, he had a very strongly disordered love to the point where he not only did not follow Jesus, he did not only stand, he did not stand up for Jesus, he denied him, not once, not twice, three times. Because disorder breeds denial. And that's what happens. See, Peter could say in the upper room, with Jesus standing there, surrounded by all the other disciples. By the way, read the text for yourself. When Peter chimed in and said, I'd never do that to you, all of the other ones said, I wouldn't either. Because what else are you going to say? Right? So when you're standing right there with Jesus, and you do love him, and all the other disciples are chiming in, oh, we would never do that. We have such a well-ordered love. You are the number one thing in our life. That's all great, but let me tell you, when Peter learned a completely different reality about how ordered his love was, when he was faced with a situation where there were alternative choices for desires, wants, and passions, when it came to loving Jesus or saving my own skin, guess what he chose? Now, he said he wouldn't do that because he says, even I have to die with you, I won't do that, but it wasn't true. Because he was saying it in a safe zone. See, really truthfully, what you believe is not decided at church after an emotional decision you make after a sermon or whatever. That's not the reality of it. Those are okay and they're good and we do that. We throw a stick in the fire at camp and all those things are good. But the reality is what you truly love and what is most important in your life is never determined until you're faced with alternatives. Until your love and the order of your love is actually tested, when there's other choices to be made. And in this very same gospel in John 13, I mean, past John 13, where he says he would never do it, 18 rolls around, and he, two girls and a, a guy come up in a crowd of people, and he denies in front of all of them. And then here's the thing. Read the rest of the, the passion narrative. You never see Peter anymore until Jesus is dead and buried and resurrected. You don't even hear from him anymore. He's out of the picture. What Peter needed, and I would suggest tonight, what you and I need every day is to have our love reordered. And I would tell you tonight that the text that we read to you is the main text in John 21 is where it is in the text, 
because there's a point to be made. If you come to the service tonight and as you listen, you find that your love is out of order and you have enough honesty and humility to say, listen, I know that Jesus ought to be first and I know all these things ought to be true, but the reality is I would not step into a room and I know exactly why not. And if you're at that place and you have that honesty, the truth is how do I change? How do I reorder my loves? And the truth is in one way you don't. The only power that is capable of reordering your love is the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. That's why the restoration of Peter is in chapter 21. See, denial equals a disordered love. Discipleship or dedication is a well-ordered love. And the massive difference between before the cross and after the cross in Peter's life is monumental. And it's all because Jesus is alive. And Jesus has died for him. And I put only the cross, death, and resurrection of Jesus can possibly reorder your life. So this passage, I believe, is in here tonight and for a good reason. And that is, John wants to give us a picture of what it would look like. What would it look like if the cross, resurrection of Jesus changed and reordered all of your loves? What would it look like? Because here's what would happen. Let me tell you what's going to happen. If you allow Jesus and his death and resurrection to reorder or change everything, here's what's going to happen. You will not get to choose how you live. Jesus is going to tell him that. Watch, more than that. You will not get to choose how you die. And they're both in the text. Both of them, even though you don't get to choose them, will be by you acts of love given to Jesus. So what would happen if you and I, like Peter, allowed Jesus' death and resurrection to reorder our loves? Well, three things. Let me give them all three to you here. Unpack them just one at a time. First, it would change fishing. Fishing. This is meant to be, in chapter 21, a deja vu story. When you read John chapter 1, and this is bookend, so you got John 1 at the beginning, you got John 21 at the end. It's like a framework for this passage. In fact, one commentator said that you could look at the Gospel of John as Jesus' training manual for discipleship. And that's truly a very possible uh, conclusion to come to because this book is all about what it really means to follow Jesus. Peter, the prime example. When Peter starts out as the disciple in John 1, this is combined with Luke chapter 5, there's a fishing story to be told. They fished all night. They can't find anything. They come to the morning. Jesus approaches them. Peter, put your net on the other side of the boat. He says, Master, we've done that all day, but because you say so, I will. They throw the net on the other side, and what happens? They have so many fish in it that the net breaks. And Peter says, Lord, depart from me. I'm such a wicked man. And Jesus calls him and says, Peter, follow me. In fact, his name was, at the time, Simon. Simon, son of John. That's what Jesus first calls him. He says, but now, now that you follow me, I'm changing your name. You're going to be Kepha, or Aramaic, which would mean rocker. We call Peter. Interestingly enough, in our text, in John 21, 15, when they had finished eating breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. That's what he called him at the first. He hadn't called him that for a long time. Why? But Jesus is reenacting. He's restoring Peter. He's saying, yeah, I still want you to be my disciple. See, but fishing is what Peter did before he met Jesus. 
And so thinking that Jesus had no more place for him because his disordered love was so out of whack, he said, well, I might as well go back to what I know. I might as well go back to fishing. So chapter 21 has another fishing story. And they have not caught anything. And now they do it. And this time, instead of the net breaking, they catch 153 fish and the net's still intact. Why? Because Jesus is saying, Peter, if you'll just abide in me and you'll follow me, even greater catches could be made. And the idea being not just regular fish, but fishers of men, as he had indicated earlier. But Peter hadn't been abiding, had he? His love had been defective and he wasn't abiding and therefore he wasn't abounding. In fact, he had gone back to nothing. Nothing is a big theme in John's gospel. If you have a pen and you're writing them down, it's worthy of a study on your own. I'm just going to briefly outline it for you. In the text it says, in chapter 21 and verse 3, it says, They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Jesus had warned them earlier, before the cross in John 15, 5. He said this, without me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. Chapter 5 and verse 19, Jesus had been the example. Him, Jesus himself said, here's the pattern or the principle. The one who is the sent one is dependent on the one who sent him. Okay? So he says of his own life, same gospel, John 5, 19, the son can do nothing on his own. Chapter 5 and verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. Chapter 8 and verse 28, I do nothing on my own. The man who was blind from birth that Jesus healed told the religious leaders in 9.33 about Jesus, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Do you hear what he's saying? Over and over in this gospel, nothing, nothing, nothing. If you don't have God, if you're not dependent on Jesus, you know what's going to happen in your life? Nothing. I often pray, God, I don't want Faith Baptist Church to be a nothing church. I don't want the service to be nothing services. I pray, God, this, might, this would not be a nothing sermon. But something, not something because I'm giving it, something because you're here. It's because we're abiding in you. And so one of the things that will change about you is fishing. Fishing will change. There'll be a missional element back in your life. See, what happens when you get a disordered love is you forget why you're here. You forget the purpose for why Jesus called you. And you forget what really is most important because you trivialize yourself and got down to this small world that you live in that everything's about you and your life and your demands and your wants. And you forget that that's the very smallest part of why you exist. That the real reason why you're here is because you've been sent. And Jesus says, see, I was sent and I can't do anything. I do nothing without the Father. I depend on him. See, he, here's what, Peter, you need that. You need to depend on me, and you haven't been. See, you thought you loved me. You thought you loved me and all that, but you really didn't. And the result has been this. Nothing. You've done nothing. I would hope tonight, if it's true in your life, that you might come to the conclusion tonight as you leave, I'm tired of nothing. I'm tired of, I don't have, I have nothing to say. 
I have nothing to say to anybody. I have nothing to say about what God's teaching me. I have nothing to say about answered prayer. I have nothing to say about the last time I tried to witness or evangelize someone. I have nothing to say about the time, the last time I tried to serve, minister, got out of the pew, did something. See, the idea of the text tonight is Peter. We've seen this before. You've been where there's nothing. Because without me, nothing. Aren't you tired of it? See, I'm calling you back, Peter. I'm calling you back to the right type of fishing, he would say. So Peter's got to, like us, when we get a well-ordered love, we relearn our dependence. We relearn that it means this, that if I'm going to have a well-ordered love, and there's going to be a missional aspect to my life, friend day, missions of all sorts and kinds, that I have to have this dependence on God. Because without it, my well-ordered love begins to break down. That's the first thing, is fishing. Second one is feeding. In our text, there are a lot of threes. Can you figure out? Someone tell me, what is something that's mentioned three times in our text? Anybody? Raise your hand, because I, I can't hear. You already, I've proven that tonight with Kevin, I can't see, so... What is a three? Yes. Yes. Three. Yeah, the first one. Feed my lambs, tend my sheep. See, three times he talks about or gives an assertion, feed them, tend them. Three times he says that in the text. What's another three? Come on, you know it. Yes, he says, Simon, son of John. I mean, he wants to say, Peter, we're back to square one. Let's get back to the basics. This is who you are. This is who I'm going to make you into be. Right? What's another three? John? Wow. I mean, to the point where on the third time around, when Jesus says, do you love me? Now, listen, you know what he's doing, don't you? Jesus says, Peter, we've both come to the conclusion by now, right, that you don't have a well-ordered love. And so he doesn't say it once, not twice, three times. And, and, And that has to sting Do you love me? I mean, Jesus is questioning the most basic thing about him. The thing that for three years plus, he pledged that he was the greatest at. That there was no disciples that loved Jesus more. He was the leader. And Jesus says that's all up for grabs. Three three questions. What else? Yes? Yes, well, that's the whole passage is built on that, isn't it, Greg? I mean... He denied him three times. That's why we're having this talk. The Bible says that he also appeared to them three times. And this one is the third. So there's a lot of threes going on in here. And Jesus says to them, Peter, he says, first time, Simon, son of John, this is the only time he asks it with this ending phrase on it. Do you love me? And then he says, more than these. And I've heard a boatload of things about what more than these are. I'll just tell you contextually what I think it's pretty obvious. Do you love me more than these other disciples? Because what did he brag? He said, if everybody else here denies you, I never will. In other words, yeah, the underling disciples, I was the oldest, I'm the leader, I'm the one who's got it all together. They may not, and it's obvious, they're not as cool as me and mature as me. They may, but I never will. And he said, I love you more than any of these guys. And was it true? No, in fact, John was at the cross. Peter wasn't. 
So it was untrue in a boatload of ways. But he says, do you love me more than these? And he couldn't say it straight out that I love you more than these because the reality was he didn't. He didn't. But he could say, I love you. That's all he could say. And here's what Peter is told by Jesus. If you love me, watch. Get this. It is not, hear me, it is not enough to tell Jesus and that alone that you love him. It is words are not enough. When my children were growing up and they would get in trouble and they were going to get punished, spanking, they would start crying before we ever got there. Okay, when I was a kid, I would fall on the ground and go crazy, hoping that my dad didn't want to drag me all the way down the hall doing that. My kids would start crying, and then right, I would tell them, listen, you're going to lean over the bed. I'm going to spank you. We're going to talk about it afterwards. And okay, they're not really control, you know, crying a lot. And then right before I would spank them, they would look at me and say, Dad, I love you. <laughs> so wrong, isn't it? That's twisted. And I would say, I said, obviously, uh, it's questionable whether you do because you're in trouble. Because what does love do? Oh, I'm sorry, it does things. And here's what Jesus says. Peter, do you love me? Oh, I love you. And then he says what? Well, then do something about it. (laughs) Feed my sheep. Now, I think he means not pastoring in general or sheep in general, like someday you're going to pastor a church. But you know what Jesus called the band of disciples? Read Luke 12, 32. He says, fear not, my little flock, for it is your father's pleasure to give you the kingdom Often he calls his disciples his little sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Here's what he's saying. Peter, this is not only a restoration between me and you. This is a restoration and maybe a commission that you're now going to be the new shepherd in my place. You're the shepherd's successor. You're the one now that, in my absence, will lead these guys. And here's what you, listen to this, and here's what the number one prerequisite for someone who's going to lead people is. Ready? That you have a well-ordered love. That you love Jesus supremely. Watch how they go together. When you have a well-ordered love, here's what's changing. Fishing and feeding. You know what that means? That you're going to love God supremely and others sacrificially. Isn't that what the two commandments Jesus said summarize the whole Old Testament law? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love others as you love yourself. And here's what Jesus says. Peter, that's what you need to get back. That's what needs to be reordered in your life. Love me supremely, and don't deny me. Make it be real. And here's how you can demonstrate. The vertical love is there when the horizontal love is there. You lead these guys. You care for them. You have compassion on them. You be an example to him. Later, Peter would write about it. In his first epistle, 1 Peter 5, 1 through 4, he says that he's an under-shepherd and that he shepherds the flock. And you don't do that, whether it's to his little flock he had at the time or for me as a pastor, to the flock that you had. You don't do it for compulsion. You don't do it because you have to. You don't do it so that you can get money. You don't do it for ulterior reasons. You know why you do it? Because Jesus is the shepherd, and you're the under-shepherd, and out of your love for him, you love people. 
That's what he would say later on. Why, where did he get that? In 1 Peter 5, well, he got it from Jesus. When Jesus reordered his loves, see. So the text says, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Tend my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my lambs. But what will it cost you and I to reorder our loves? He says in a very formulatic way, in ESV, our text, it says in verse number 19, I believe, 18, I'm sorry, truly, truly, I say to you, King James, verily, verily, this truly, truly, in other words, it's a formula. It's a, it's a statement that you make when you want everybody to know that what follows that statement is incredibly serious. Jesus uses it. Another good study on your own. Study them all. There's 25 times in John's gospel he makes the statement, and what follows is always incredibly important. Not that everything Jesus says isn't important, but this is in particular. 25 times. This is the very last one that he says it in this gospel. And well, here's what he says. Peter, let me, let me tell you how you can show that you really have changed and your love has been reordered. You're going to feed my lambs, right? And what will that cost you? I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress and walk wherever you wanted. See, now watch. In this verse is the opening illustration. It's a conflict of what you want. He says, see, you used to do just what you wanted. But now as I reorder your loves, you have a different want. And it's not going to be easy to want this. In fact, it's not what you really want, but you're going to do it anyways. Why? Because the power of obedience in the face of conflict is love. The power of obedience in the case of conflict is love. So he says, you used to do what you want when you're, but when you're old, you're going to stretch out your hands. Another will dress you, and truthfully, not to be graphic, really undress you and carry you where you do not want to go. There's going to be this struggle because when you get a reordered love, It'll give you the ability to do the things that you really don't naturally want to do. And in this case, it is a description, according to the next phrase, about what death Peter would glorify God. And we know from history that he was crucified. Now, a lot of people say upside down because Peter thought he wasn't worthy. Probably not the real reason. Usually, as history tells, people were crucified in all kinds of crazy positions because they wanted to mock them. Most likely they did it because being crucified upside down was even more torturous. Probably really what happened. But nevertheless, the point is, he, it cost him everything. But John's gospel is really big on having this, that people who Jesus loves or God loves or loves God back have their loves and their lives changed and their death. Lazarus really loved Jesus and Jesus really loved Lazarus. In fact, it says so in John eleven three five 5, and 38. Behold how he loved them. And when Martha and Mary send a message, Jesus tells the disciples that his sickness is not unto death. What is it for? Ah, oh, but it's for the glory of God. So when you get a reordered love, guess what? It only not only reorders your life, but it reorders your death in such a way that your death can be an act of, and sometimes the greatest act of love you ever give Jesus. 
Lazarus died in such a way, after four days, Jesus didn't show up. He brings them out of the tomb where everyone thought his spirit was already gone. Three days, they thought, fourth day, your spirit's gone. There's no chance of you ever being coming back. Jesus said, no, nothing's impossible for me. And he says, let me tell you this. Even your death can be a great act of love for me. In this text, it says Peter's death is going to be another way that he can prove just how much he loves God. Same thing is spoken of Jesus in John 12, verses 23 through 32. He says, my hour has come, and now the Son of Man is glorified. And it says, and then three or eight verses later, and this is the kind of death Jesus would die. He will be lifted up. See, Lazarus, Jesus, Peter, all of their deaths were planned by God in such a way that they would glorify God as a very public act of love. So, for you and I, we began to think about these things and pray, and pray these types of things. God, may you so reorder my love by Calvary in the empty tomb that not only do I pray that you would reorder my life, but even so, God, whatever death you have for me sooner or later, may even that be an act of love to you. Now, that, see, that's a change. Who thinks like that? Followers of Jesus do. It's a pattern See, Jesus died on a cross. And the Bible says, but God so loved the world and God demonstrated his love toward us. Jesus' death on a cross planned by God was the greatest act of love in all of history. And Jesus says, listen, Peter, now that you're the under shepherd, that's how I died. Now that's how you're going to die. And that leads me to the last one, and let me tie it in. See, when you get a reordered love from the death and resurrection of Jesus, fishing, feeding, following. Jesus says in the very next verse, this is just said by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after that, this saying, he said to him, here's what he says, follow me. It was the first thing he said to him, Chapter 1, and it's one of the last things he says to him. And I put on my paper, more likeness equals more love. Less likeness, less love. The number one goal of discipleship, the number one aim of anyone who would say they follow Jesus is to be like him. And a well-ordered love is a love likes like Jesus's love. And what kind of love is it? It's a cruciform love. It's a love that dies to sin and self. And Jesus says, you want to be like me? Be like me in your life. Love people, shepherd people, care for people, meet their needs, those in crisis, you help them. And like me in my death, he says. Both of them are crucial. Do you know John, the guy who's telling us all of this and wrote this gospel, never calls himself by his name. In this gospel, he never says, I, John, write these things. But do you remember what little phrase he uses five times, to be exact, that he calls himself in this, bu- in this book? Yes. The disciple whom Jesus loved. He can't get over The fact that Jesus loved him. Because for John, like Peter, 
And like the followers of Christ, it reordered their love. And I looked it up. I don't know what you make of this, but he's called the disciple whom Jesus loved five times. Chapter 13, 19, 20, and twice in 21. Never before chapter 13. Do you know John's gospel is split up in half? 1 to 12, 13 to 21. 1 to 12 is the life and ministry. 13 and on is the passion. Why isn't John ever call himself the disciple Jesus loved in 1 through 12? Why never? Why, why not? What's the point? Why wait till all five of them, I mean, not two of them here and three of them over here? Why all five packed in the back? Here's why. Because it's a cruciform love. John wants you to identify being loved by Jesus with his passion. That if you want to have the love that Jesus had for John, Jesus had for the world, Jesus had for his father, John 7, you want to have that love, you can't get it without the cross and the empty tomb. And if you do have it, the greatest thing that you could ever do was to do it like Jesus. And thus Jesus says to him, follow me. Now Peter, like all of us, he's still having a hard time. You know why? Because the first thing he says, next two verses, but what about this guy? And he points over to John and says, but yeah, but what about him? I mean, Peter, didn't we just go through that? I mean, didn't you just tell me that you were better than everybody else? And now, because I tell you, you're going to die this way, and this is what you're going to have to do for me. Now you're worried if John has to do as much as you do. You know what Jesus says? What if I leave him till I come? Now, it started a big rumor that maybe he was going to be left. I know there are people who think that he's still around today, which is not what the Bible was trying to say. The Bible said, hey, here's the point, Peter. Don't worry about anybody else. See, tonight, if you're thinking this while I'm talking... Yeah, I don't love them as much as other people. Or I wish I could. Or Yeah, but what about them? I've seen them. This isn't between you and anybody else. This is a question for you. Peter is, I mean, Peter is having a personal conversation with Jesus. And that's why God brought you here tonight. He wants to have a personal conversation with you about how much you love him. And he wants you to, to figure out in your mind and heart, do I have a well-ordered love or not? And so... He tells him one last time, if you can turn over. He says, what is that? He says, if I, I come, he says, if, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? And then he says, another three, the last one, three words. And in the literal Greek, it says this, follow you me. <laughs> That's what he says. The emphatic part is the following. Pa- Peter doesn't matter. Here's what matters. You love me supremely and others sacrificially. You. He says, follow. And he says, you, me. That's, see, this is our relationship. You, me. You and me, what matters most is do you love me enough to follow me like that? That's what he's asking. Because if you do, there's a cross involved. If you do, you're going to have to die to yourself. If you do, it's not going to be about you. If you do, it's going to be about God. It's going to be about Jesus. It's going to be about fishing. It's going to be about feeding. It's going to be about lost people and sheep and everybody. It's not going to be about you. In fact, it's going to cost you everything, and it still won't be about you. He says, answer that question. Do you love me now? So back to the beginning and close. What do you really want the most? See, every day when you get up, you enter the room and you open the Bible and you're in heaven, so to speak, with God in the room. 
and he talks to you about what you really like, what you really want the most, and he reveals it. And every time you sin, and every time I sin, we have to get on our knees and say, I did that. You know why? Because I wanted to. Because I wanted to. And I didn't want you. I didn't. And that's my problem. Proverbs 28, 26 says, he who trusts in his own heart is a fool. Peter did. He thought he had a well-ordered love. He didn't. But the cross and the resurrection changed him. And it can change you and me too. Amen? Let's pray. Father, help us. We, me, I overestimate the sincerity of my love for you, the measure of my love, the magnitude of it. Father, it's not till we're faced with alternative desires and wants and loves, and we choose them over you because the cost is too high that we really come to grips with our disordered loves. But yet, you still want to use us in all of our disorder. You want to change it. You want to make us your disciples. You still want to use us. There's still a mission for us. There's still purpose. I pray, Father, that we might take great heart in that and encouragement tonight, that we'd come back to the cross, come back to the empty tomb, and say, please, Lord, reorder my love so that it's like your cruciform love. Help us do that the more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.